You can find more information, photos and advice sheets on all the plants and recipes that we talk about in this podcast by heading to the links in the show notes or on our website at sarahraven.com. Welcome to Grow, Cook, Eat, Arrange, the podcast of me, Sarah Raven and Arthur Parkinson. Actually, Arthur's not here today because Josie Lewis, who is the head gardener at Perch Hill and has been with us for, I think, nine years, is completely my right-hand woman and runs this place fantastically. We run all the trials together. We decide what we're trialling. She does the records. She runs the team when I'm off and around teaching or whatever. And so she is the thread of continuum in this place, without which it would fall to bits. I know that I've referred to her as of Arthur so many times through the last year of the podcast, but it just struck me that it was so strange and bad, actually, that we hadn't yet had Josie on the podcast. So that's why I asked her to join me today. And we agreed we would talk about one of her incredible passions, which are roses. And it's sort of quite a good time to be talking about roses now because you can still just about plant them, even just about bare root when you're listening to this. And so they are cheaper and better value. And anyway, what is nicer than a rose? And really genuinely, it is Josie who has completely taken me back to roses. So when I started gardening, I loved them and I loved picking them. And and then I went off them because I felt all the varieties that I wanted to grow, like that wonderful Madame Gregoire Stachelin, which is remarkable partly for its name, or Madame Isaac Perrier, all these ones that when we lived at Sissinghurst, I was surrounded by, I wanted to grow here at Perch Hill. But they just got black spot and defoliated completely and just looked awful in the garden. So I'd been really put off them. But then Josie came and she's passionate about roses. And why don't you tell us why, Josie? Why do you love roses? Roses. Roses so much. (laughs) Well, first off, thank you for inviting me to talk about roses. Why do I love them? I think... Many people like I do, I have like a visceral reaction to them. You expect them in every British garden. You know, they're, they're just the quintessential British flower, aren't they? And always come top in people's favourite choice of flowers. Yeah. And there's so many, there's a multitude of colours, marvellous scents and all sorts of different forms. But it's, it's not something that I grew up with. When I I was brought up on a farm in West Wales and we didn't have a rose garden, it was all veg growing. Every bit of space was given over to to growing food. Uh, But we did have beautiful dog roses in the hedges. Oh, yeah, of course. Um, And, you know, they were much appreciated for their very fleeting appearance every year. And then, of course, you had the hips, which, of course, we'd gather for making syrups and all sorts of things like that. Well, because your mum was Swiss, wasn't she? Yes, she was, yes. And very much into foraging and, you know, making use of wild plants like that. So, yeah, it was was interesting. Yeah, so then I had years of not really doing anything with roses. Uh, And then 
I was just walking past the row of front gardens and I was hit by this amazing scent and I had to go back and see what it was. And, you know, it, it was a, a rose, but I didn't recognize it. So I went to my books and uh, it turned out to be Rosa Regia La Haye. Uh, and, you know, that beautiful scented rose. Yeah. And of course, it set me off then again on my journey with roses, mm. uh, which was uh, fabulous. And wherever I've been ever since, you know, I've always planted a rose. Yeah. One in most of my gardens, but when I came here, I planted <laughs> quite a hedge outside the window. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And but I worked in a garden centre for quite a few years. And, you know, it was always great excitement when the roses came in in spring. They weren't bare root. They were, they were containerized roses. Yeah. And the Dutch trolleys of roses would come in. And, you know, all the customers would suddenly appear. You know, an email would go out, the roses are in. And they fly off the shelves. They're right. so, I mean, they were, they're so loved. Yeah. Um, Even though they're quite expensive, aren't they? I mean, as a, yes, as a, as an average for a, for a plant, I mean, they are quite pricey. Yeah. But, but I don't think people should balk at paying that price. No. If, if you think that, you know, from the original cross pollination that the breeders do until you get the final product on the shelf, you know, that's 10 years work. Yeah. You know, they've got to to cover those costs somehow. Can you talk us through that a little bit, how that process happens? Well, the, the, you look for good characteristics in a rose and you, you start crossing them, cross-pollinating them, your chosen roses. And, you know, a, a, a top breeder, say like David Austin, will have 350,000 seedlings in a year. You know, wow. it's just phenomenal, the amount... And, you know, year after year, they, they weed out the ones that are not good enough or, you know, subject to disease and things like that. So they would literally plant out each one of those seedlings yes. and then see yeah. what it turned into. I, th I think those are just planted like in cells originally, okay. you know, that number. Yeah. And I think they can tell, you know, these they're, okay. they're proper, yeah. proper rosarians. Yeah. And then they'll choose, you know, which has the best characteristics and weedle them down. And you know they'll they'll come down to what five roses or something wow, after that's all amazing, those isn't yes it? yeah you so know, in fact exactly like tulip breeding or dahlia yes, breeding which yeah. we've talked about in previous episodes but yes. it's I suppose not surprisingly the same process yes. I know but you know, because a rose is a shrub it just seems more doesn't it yes. than dahlia or a tulip yes um, but it is phenomenal what these breeders do and I know. Obviously, the average growth rate will be different from one type of rose to another. But could you give us an idea how long from the cross-pollination to sort of, oh, well, you said it's, yeah, 10, it's years. 10 years. It's literally yes. 10 years. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. How amazing. And because when they've got their chosen few, then they have to bulk them up. So they have yes. to go through the whole process of bulking up enough to sell to the public. Yes, um, of course. Yeah, so every time you buy a rose... You know, just think what's gone before and, you know, you'll appreciate it and not think about the price. And I do think that times are changing a bit on roses. And, you know, like the, the couple that I mentioned at the beginning, which they're truly, truly stunningly beautiful. But in my experience anyway, they do require spraying with a fungicide and or an insecticide once a fortnight, really, to keep them looking healthy and growing well. And I think as we celebrate biodiversity more and so celebrate the presence of insects and things in our garden, 
you know, we are going to move away from that. And I guess breeders are also looking for good disease resistance, good, strong, vigorous growth, etc. I think it's one of the primary things that they look for now. Yeah. You know, that we're not going to have chemicals on the shelves no. in a few years' time. No. We've got to look after the plants. You've got to look after the soil. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, some of these old roses... Yeah, it's a, it's a shame, but it's gardening. You know, let, let's move on. You yeah. know what I'm like. Yeah, I do. Josie, <laughs> just to let you all know, sometimes I come back. It's like, oh, where did that shrub go? Oh, it didn't, it wasn't performing well. Oh, all right then, it's gone. <laughs> no, she'd always ask me first, but so it's still a shock when it actually is like, oh, well, I quite like that, even if it was a bit imperfect. But no, Josie is, is a perfectionist and that's a very good thing. But a, re, a very relaxed perfectionist, so maybe those two are contradictory. Anyway, maybe we should um, we should just chat through favourite varieties. I mean, I suppose, oh, I, I, I wasn't quite sure how we should divide this down when I was thinking about, you know, the kind of structure for this particular episode. But I think maybe if we talk about habit first, so if we first of all talk about sort of you know, your favorite climber for a small wall and then maybe your favorite climber for a tree or a, or a bigger wall? Uh, okay, so, oh, yeah, let's start with a small climber then. So I would go for the, the Simple Life. Yes. That is just such a stunning rose. We planted it out here not, not to climb but to form like a rose hedge yeah. so it would bend over and we could tie it to each other, to its own stems. So growing to about 2.5 metres, so it doesn't get out of hand. Mm. Um, it's single, yeah. it's white, you know, not necessarily my favourite colour, white sort of tinged with pink, but such healthy leaf growth. Yeah. And, you know, when we come to prune it in January, it's it's often still got all its leaves on. Yes. Uh, and so we have to to pick all that off, really, to, yeah. to stop any disease carryover. Right, right. No, I love it. You totally introduced me to it. And it's just like the roses you describe in your childhood in Wales, you know, like a dog rose, but just with bigger. I mean, they're not huge. They probably fill one bloom would fill the palm of my hand. But you get this this great sort of covering and the way you prune them. Maybe you could just talk about that is how you prune them to have foliage and flowers right down to ground level, which I know is something that we've learned from Sissinghurst and uh, Vita Sattva-West, head gardener um, I think between the war, uh, was it, or in the 50s, Jack Vass, who had yes, come yeah. from Cliveden, I think. His rose pruning technique is something that we've borrowed here. Yeah, so it's we, we cut whippy hazel uh, thick enough to hold the rose stems. So you'd, you'd cut a two, two and a half metre straight piece of hazel and push both ends into the ground so it forms a semicircle and then tie the rose stems to it so they'd be bending over yeah and this this obviously provokes you know like you, when you train anything horizontally it provokes the buds to shoot upwards so you you get this covering and you can form these hoops you know into any shape you like you can form them into a circle or we do all sorts here don't we we yeah. sort of run it like a, a crisscross hedge down the a farmhouse garden with with a simple life and you get a mass it looked like a tunnel really didn't it yeah incredible yeah 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 which is gone now but you know yeah it's gone you see everyone it's gone can you believe it <laughs> we've moved on <laughs> Um, well, I'm I'm going to counter for every one that you choose. I'm going to choose one too, and I'm, okay. I'm going to go for the alchemist, 
which is actually a rose. I don't think, to be honest, I would have chosen from a catalogue, but it was delivered by one of our plant suppliers when we did our colour cutting garden for the RHS Chelsea, probably now four or five years ago. And it's a sort of a kind of buffy, apricotty, you know, that sort of trendy cafe au lait sort of type colour. And the reason I love it, we have it trained here on a wall and on the what we call the Chelsea Shed, which came from the garden at Chelsea. And I love it because it flowers so early. It really does flower, I would say, from mid-May. And it's over then within a month, so it's not a reflowerer. But again, it goes on to have this rather lovely glossy foliage. So against our sandstone walls here, it looks really handsome just as a climate, even without the flowers. But when the flowers are there, it is dense. It is absolutely covered in these sort of really soft-coloured pom-poms. And they have delicious scent. So uh, that would be my sort of smaller scale climber that, that would be my first choice, I think. And then what about you for a whopper, Josie, a sort of rambling rose that might go up into a tree or something like that? I'd probably choose Francis E. Lester. Oh, yeah, that yeah. is very famous. That yes, one, isn't it? yeah. So, I mean, it's quite old rose, isn't it? Grows to around six metres, so it won't overwhelm a tree. Yeah. It's single flowers with a, with a touch of pink. Uh, it looks a bit like apple blossom when mm. it comes out. Yeah. It's got this amazing fragrance. So if you're under that tree, you'll smell it within a, a lot of uh, an area close to it. It's yeah. a very healthy rose. Yeah, absolutely love it. Yeah. Again, not particularly long flowering, no. but, but a really nice climber to yeah, have that's apart it. from the flower. Yes. Um, and the, the, I mean, the thing we must say here is, People need to know the difference between ramblers and climbers, you oh, know, yes, because explain. often people plant a rambler on an arch or something and it's just, it'll just be overwhelmed, yeah. really. You've yeah. got to look at the final height of, of what you've bought and, you know, you'd just be fighting with it, trying to strap it down to the arch uh, and it never works. Yeah. And, you know, I've done the same thing myself, planting Madame Alfred Carrier yes. on a porch much too big yes and I spent you know years fighting with it uh, so in the end it had to go right. you know yeah. the, they're they're such big roses so a rambler is a big rose better for a tree or for growing over a building what, what's your yeah rambler? I would say I think probably wedding day but I'm so greedy that we don't have many ramblers here because they are more fleeting and I want flowering for longer. But Wedding Day, I remember as a child, and they have these great panicles. Is that what you'd call them? Anyway, great sort of curtains of flowers. So lots of little flowers, but they combine to form these sort of amazing pom-poms. Again, single flowers, very scented. It's a whopper, though. It'll grow to 10 metres. I remember in my parents' garden, it grew right up through this lilac tree and actually then up onto the roof of a barn and then sort of along the barn. And when it was in flower in June, it, it was absolutely ecstatically lovely. And the whole of the courtyard of that barn was perfumed with the with the scent of wedding day. So that would definitely be mine for a, a whoppers. So any other climbers, Josie, that you want to mention? Well, I've, I've got a climber under the colour you know, so I'll keep that in reserve, if I may. Okay, fine. So we're now <laughs> going to move on to just then dividing them down into colours, because that's what I always feel is if I'm wanting to plant a new rose, 
I'll pretty much know certainly what palette I want to go, but even what color I want. And so that's how to kind of then start in a catalog looking at that. So, so I asked Josie to have a think about each of the main color groups that you might want to include in a planting plan and which were her particular recommendations in each of those color groups. So let's start with white or cream. And I mean, you've already mentioned Madame Alfred Carrier, which I'm going to start this, by the way. So I have a fondness for that rose because Vita and Harold planted it on the south face of the south cottage in the garden at Sissinghurst. And they're reputed to have, or she is reputed to have planted it between sort of Ofra on Sissinghurst and the completion. So I don't know if they had these terms then, but between exchange and completion. And it was her sort of staking her claim to this rather extraordinary, romantic, ruined collection of buildings, which were pretty tatty at the time. But she planted Madame Alfred Carrier. And really sadly, in lockdown, when the staff were mainly furloughed, it perished, um, whether it was just old age in the end, because, of course, it was planted in 1930. And and here we are several decades later, (laughs) well, nearly 100 years later. Anyway, it's a a very good rose because it will grow on almost any aspect. It's got a nice scent, but it's big, as Josie says. So these sort of white into cream flowers, pretty healthy, and you can prune it back quite hard. But I'm fond of it because you can even plant it on a north-facing wall, which is good, although they haven't got it there at Sissinghurst. So over to you. What's your favourite in the whites? So, you know, me with white, I struggled really to to choose a favourite white. So I've gone off white, if you'll allow me that. Okay. (laughs) Um, So I've gone for champagne moment, uh, which is creamy, white into pale apricot. Very healthy rose, grows to about four feet. And, you know, it's very popular because of its name. So it's often given as a gift. Yeah. So that was very cleverly named. Yeah. And it's got nice scent, hasn't it? I think, yeah. Yes. yeah, Yeah, yeah. Not not overwhelming, but yeah, it is lovely. Yeah. And what about your favourite pink? I'd go with uh, the pale pink Aphrodite, probably. It it starts off as, you know, just pink buds, like uh, proper rose buds. Mm. And then as it opens, it becomes this marshmallowy confection. And it sort of, yeah, it, it froths everywhere. It's It's just a wonderful over-the-top rose when it's fully open. And it repeats, doesn't it? I mean, yes. Yeah. Um, am I right? And is that the one we call the marshmallow rose? Yes. Yeah. yeah that's it. It, it yes. looks like a marshmallow. Honestly, yeah. it's sort of that that very very soft pink, and it it looks like its texture. If you ate it, would be like a marshmallow. It's sort of soft and squidgy, and it 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 flowers and flowers. So you, we pick quite a heavy crop of it, and then you'll just get another crop and another crop. I mean, it really goes on for ages. Yeah, and it's good for cutting as well. Yeah. So, yeah, it goes down well here. And then I'm going to skip on because we can't go on too long. Uh, what about your favourite deep red or purple? Oh, a, a definitely timeless purple. What a, an amazing rose. It's it's not as harsh as some of the reds. Much easier to sit in a, a border or in an arrangement. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, a classic looking rose. Good for cutting. It repeat flowers. You know, not too big. You could grow it in a pot if you wanted. Yeah. So, you know, what's not to like about it, really? I think it's one, lots of prizes, two, Timeless Purple. I think it's um, it's, a, it's quite a recent one, isn't it? Yes. But, yeah. um, it, it's definitely been, was bred for cutting, but I think it's now become 
widely accepted and appreciated as a garden rose because it's just so healthy. Yes, yeah. Uh, and very long flowering. In the sort of pink into purple, I'm just going to mention one, which is one again. She's taken out of the garden here, everybody. But, <laughs> but I'm going to secrete it in somewhere. It's called Charles de Mill. And again, it's not a reflower, which is why I think Josie has something against it. But it's a rose that I've grown since my first garden in London in my 20s. And it's just only flowers in June, it's true, into July. But it's got the most incredible texture. And that's why I love it. It's deep, sort of plum pink and very, very healthy foliage. And one of the things I love about it is that it does this running thing. And so it puts out subterranean runners. And what we found here is that the runners were going under the brick paths and appearing at a distance, sometimes a couple of metres away. You'd get this fresh stem coming up and forming a new bush. And reading Vita Sepva West, as I recommend doing, she's such a good garden writer, really, almost unparalleled, I think. She said that they'd grown Charles de Mille for decades at Sissinghurst, and they found that when the mother bush tired and and was sort of doing less well and being less floriferous, they could dig her up, but actually the babies that had been created from the runners would take over and be much more healthy and vigorous and longer flowering. And we found exactly the same thing here. And I rather like that sort of wayward behavior of Charles de Mille, as well as its spectacularly glamorous flowers. So I couldn't not have a Charles de Mille in a garden. Even though you say I've got rid of it, it's still there. Oh, good. It'll be coming back it's forever. Popping. It's popping itself up. Good. And then what about the controversial colours that are sort of, ah, they're very, very fashionable at the moment. You know, they, they would have made me turn in the other direction in the old days, like the sort of mauves and the milky coffees and the sort of weird edgy colours that are so trendy, the sort of vintage colours. What's your favourite in those? I'd probably have to go for Honey Dijon, I think. Which, yeah. Which is, it, the colour is as it sounds. Yeah. Honey and Dijon mustard. It's yeah. just uh, an amazing, a slightly weird colour, I call it. But it, it hasn't been given a fair trial here, really. I think we need to replant it and see how it does. But, you know, it, it was given a harsh trial and it's done quite well. Yeah. Uh, so we, we'll look at that again, I think. I love that. And I do love the not very vigorous, but extremely classy Coco Loco, which is the colour of the tulip, La Belle Epoque. So again, that sort of latte, milky coffee colour. And it can't be too overcrowded. We'll come on in a minute to about, about how to grow rose as well. But it's definitely one that's quite sensitive to overcrowding and it needs good feeding. But it's, it's a very unusual colour and it's beautiful, beautiful, beautiful for the vase. Okay, so the final colour group into the oranges and yellows, Josie. Uh, so this is where uh, my climber has gone into this section. So it's a uh, terribly named scent from heaven. Yes. Uh, and it, it is, the, the scent on this rose is really wonderful. But of course here it's the divisive rose, isn't it? I always stand in its defense and yes. you're, you're trying to get rid of it for a change. <laughs> but luckily all the visitors here love it. Mm, uh, they do. And the deers are on your side because they're always eating it over the fence. Yeah. But a, a short, vigorous climber, great for training along a fence. 
Yeah. Okay. Now, we can't go on too long because we've still got to talk about a bit about growing. But if you were to choose one rose, regardless of color, regardless of form, if you were only allowed to take one to the moon, which would you take? Oh, I'd have to take hot chocolate. Okay. Yeah. yeah. You knew I was going to say that. I thought you might. Yeah. Always my favorite. And you're right. I mean, I, it wouldn't be mine, but I know why you'd take it. Yeah. I have such a lovely color. So healthy. Yeah. Always covered in flowers. Yeah. What would you take? I think I would take a really uncontroversial one, which is Rosa Mutabilis. And the thing about it is that it goes anywhere. So it's this beautiful China single rose, and it's called Mutabilis, which means changing or changeable, I think, in Latin. And its flowers open apricot and then deepen to this sort of pink. And it's quite sort of not messy looking, but certainly very relaxed in its flower and doesn't have particularly beautiful foliage, but it's rather lovely sort of bronzy foliage. And it takes two or three years to really get going. So you can't be impatient with it, but it then flowers continually from spring, late spring until really late autumn. And again, I was brought up with it, planted against the brick wall in my parents' garden just outside Cambridge. And I loved it then. And I used to pick it as a child. And I love it now and still pick it. But it's not that sort of not your socks off, fully double, really exotic, incredible, glamorous rose. It's a much more sort of subtle beauty. But for me, it's just a winner, totally healthy, never any problem with any diseases. And it's just sort of dear to my heart somehow. Again, back to your, where you started, you know, it, it's got that sort of simple, straightforward beauty as a dog rose in a hedge somehow. I mean, it is lovely. And we have a lot of them here, so they... <laughs> we do. I'm allowed, I'm allowed them. <laughs> yes. So before we finish, so this is going to be coming out sort of mid to late March-ish. So Josie, what would be the things that you want people to think about at that moment in March? Is it a little... It's only too late for pruning, depending on the season, if the rose is fully in leaf, isn't yeah, if, it? Yes, if the leaf, leaves have started coming out. We've just about finished pruning now, mid-March time. But if you haven't finished, you know, don't worry. Mm. It's better to prune than not to prune, even if you are pruning some of the new leaves off. But then you're really taking out the dead and diseased, so that wouldn't be an issue. Yeah. Uh, make sure there's a lot of air flow through the as much as you can get through the the bushes that's you know to keeps the uh, disease down keeps black spot down yeah remove any weak stems that are sort of below less diameter than a pencil i always look for so if it, mm. it's like a pencil and be uh, bigger then you know that's going to be a healthy stem producing good flowers and that's a good, good leaves yeah and mulch Mulch, mulch, yeah. mulch. It's the important thing. Don't overfeed your roses. You know, or if we keep adding fertilizer, it doesn't get used up. It messes with the ecosystem under the ground. Just think of all those mycorrhizal fungi down there doing all their work. You know, and you keep hitting them with more and more fertilizer, that they're not going to be happy. So mulch the ground, organic matter on the top. And that's that's the important thing with roses. You know, if you're lucky enough like us to have access to farmyard manure that's ideal yeah. but whatever you can you know homemade compost is the next next best thing but whatever you can get hold of really and would you water 
If you're establishing a rose, definitely. Yeah. But if they're established roses, no, they'd no. be quite low down on my watering list. Okay. If you are watering a rose, don't just sprinkle around it, you know, good canful per rose. Yeah. And then move on to the next one. All the time you're sprinkling, the top layer of soil gets damp. The rose roots move upwards rather than downwards. Yeah. And then you're in for all sorts of trouble, trouble really. Yeah. 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 Uh, so still time to plant. But it just makes it that the later you leave planting, the more high maintenance it will be yeah. because you've got to get those roots down into its new home before we hit the hot months of sort of May and June. Yes, yeah. So that's why we, we stop at the end of March with mm. bare root planting. Yeah. But you can carry on planting container roses all through the season. Uh, but if you're buying container roses of April time, they'll have been taken out of the field. So let them grow on in their container, oh. let them form roots. So it, it's always good to leave them for a few weeks in the container. So definitely wait till you see roots coming out the bottom of Ideally, the pot. Ideally, yes. Yeah. 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 Otherwise, you know, you'll take it out of the pot or the compost will fall off. But, you know, you've got to expect that because they have been field grown roses. And then I remember another thing that the final thing perhaps that you taught me was you have to be careful to plant it at the same level as it's in the container. If you plant it slightly proud, you might have got the union, if it was a grafted rose, above in the light, and that will then, you'll get suckering, won't you? Yes, yeah. Yeah, so the, the graft union needs to be a couple of centimetres below the soil surface. Yeah, that's key, so, isn't it? Yes, and it, it, it's easier with a container rose because you can see where the, the, the union is. And, right. But with a bare root rose, you make sure you can see that union and put that below the soil surface. Yeah. And then, as you say, the suckers won't form. Otherwise, the suckers can grow and overwhelm the one that's been grafted on it, and you won't get anything that resembles the rose no. that you've... You'll get a lot of lovely wild rose flowers, yeah. but not yeah. what you wanted. And not straight away. It'll probably be... Two or three years before it's overwhelmed, won't it? Yes, the, yeah, yeah, the, that's yeah. right, yes. How lovely. Well, thank you, Josie. And as I've talked about before, to make roses last in water, you absolutely definitely want to remove as much leaf as you can bear to and to sear the stem ends in boiling water for 10 seconds, even up to 20 seconds if it's a big stem rose and quite woody. And then, oddly, I find the shorter the stem, the better. They last on a on a shorter stem, which is why I quite often make a grid, which is literally knots and crosses grid tied with knots at each of the crossovers. And I, I then just prop that over a big bowl, like a salad bowl, and plop the roses through each of the knots and crosses blanks, if you see what I mean. And they're then got really close access to the water and they will then should last really, really well. Thank you so much. Pleasure. For joining nice, us. nice to talk about one of my favourite things. Thank you very much for listening. Next week, we are going to talk about something that is dear to both our hearts, but perhaps particularly Arthur's, which is drought tolerant container plants, because we're just beginning to put together our planting plans and designs for both well, Arthur's doing his, for his two sort of yard gardens. And I'm doing mine with Josie at Perch Hill, so it's very much at the forefront of our mind. But drought tolerance with climate change, etc., but also with ease of maintenance really makes a difference. So knowing the plants 
that don't need constant watering is what we're going to be talking about next week. So see you then. You can find more information, photos and advice sheets on all the plants and recipes that we talk about in this podcast by heading to the links in the show notes or on our website at sarahoven.com.